following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, we are back with Larger for Life, a podcast journeying through the Westminster Larger Catechism. And last episode, we tackled question 14 on how God executes his decrees. And we established very thoroughly, I believe, and very well, that God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And so for the next few episodes, that's how we're going to tackle the next handful of questions. We're going to handle this episode, question uh, 15, 16, and 17, uh, speaking of God's work in creation, especially his creation of man in his image. And then the next episode after that, we'll handle God's works of providence. And so before we get started, I want to introduce or reintroduce to you uh, our co-hosts for this podcast. We have the whole gambit with us today. We have Stephen Spinnenweber from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, hey, everybody. Good to see you again. And then we have Mr. Sean Morris up in Tennessee. Hey, hey, hey. We have Nick, who is still in Germany, but not for too much longer. Guten Tag, y'all. And then the right Reverend Derek Bright, hailing from Aliceville, Alabama. Hey, thanks, Matt. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Perfect. Um, And so, again, we're going to handle 15, 16, and 17 uh, this episode. And question 15 asks, what is the work of creation? And the answer The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days and all very good. Well, before I even uh, shoot it over to our buddy Spin uh, to kick us off here, I'm going to go ahead and put out the disclosure. We are all ordinary day. We are six literal 24-hour days, and so uh, this podcast comes with a trigger warning, maybe, uh, for those fellas that uh, and ladies that hold to a framework or analogical day, uh, but maybe after this episode, you won't. Um, and tell us about that spin. How do we kick off uh, question 15 with the work of creation? Uh, the work of creation, we say, happened in the space of six days, We maintain those as ordinary days. There's a diversity of views on what day means. Some people will look at the Hebrew word yom, and they'll say that uh, there are places in Scripture where the word day doesn't mean a 24-hour day, like you and I know, but they'll say that it can describe an indeterminate period of time, like in my father's day. We're not speaking of a literal day. We're speaking of a period of time that's longer than one day, and They'll also point to other places in scripture where, and always these are speaking more to the eternality 
of God and not commenting on the length of the creation days, but it's talking about how with God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, a thousand being again, a number for an indeterminate and long period of time. But when we go to the book of Genesis, there's a couple of things and a couple of reasons uh, why we would maintain that it is a historical narrative, albeit it is stylized and it's communicated in a very orderly and a very elevated sense. We believe it's historical narrative because the rest of the book of Genesis is a historical narrative. For those of you who are in uh, maybe your first or second year of Hebrew in seminary, you know that Genesis 1 is marked by the Vav consecutive, which is a sign of historical narrative. People will often look at the book of Genesis and say that it is poetic or the Genesis one, the creation account is poetic, but Hebrew poetry, like you find in the Psalms, doesn't really have the same uh, grammatical structure as what we find in Genesis 1. So we have something called the Vav consecutive. There's also the ordinal prefix, first day, second day, third day. Anywhere else in scripture where that ordinal prefix, first, second, third, is used and attached to a day, that day is always literal. And then I'll kind of, I'm sure we all have uh, proofs or we all have reasons why we take Genesis 1 um, as a historical narrative as we do the rest of the book of Genesis. But I'll say this, that there's a hermeneutical or an interpretive reason why we would maintain and why we would uh, encourage others to take Genesis 1 and 2 literally and uh, not figuratively. And that's because when scripture speaks on a given topic and we have no reason to interpret that passage of scripture differently than what the words mean at face value we should interpret them at face value so for example um in the new testament it says that baptism now saves you right at face value you'd read that and say Oh, well, baptism must save a person. Well, when we compare it with other parts of Scripture, we know that that can't be the meaning of those words, that they must be uh, speaking figuratively. But when we read something like the resurrection narratives, um, we would not interpret those figuratively. We would interpret those literally. Why? Because there's nothing else in Scripture that requires that we read them uh, in any different way. And so likewise, I think the strongest reason why we should read Genesis uh, 1 and 2 in a literal fashion is because there's nothing else in the rest of Scripture that requires us to interpret those figuratively or analogically. There, there's nothing else in Scripture that says Genesis 1 and 2 can't be literal days. And because the text very clearly is speaking in the terminology peculiar to literal days, like morning and evening, I say that's the way that we should read it. Um, what do you all have to say about that? I mean, is that like a valid, I think, hermeneutical principle that I just articulated, that unless we have reason from other places in Scripture to take or not to take the words at face value, we ought to take them at face value until Scripture requires otherwise. Is that fair? You know, Spin, one of the things that I think our, re our uh, listeners have to be considering is this. Uh, the original readers of the text of Scripture, of Genesis 1, 
um, when we're talking about and, and when a, theo- a theologian or a theological school might point to it and and account the creation narrative as being a, a poetical structure or something like that, they are generally pointing to more than the general or to the specific idea of poetry. Instead, they're they're pointing to a theological view of Genesis 1 <clears throat> that accommodates uh, scientific measures or theories, uh, things completely alien to the world of the Bible, something that we would have to say, if that is the case that the author of Genesis is intending to uh, indicate through the poetical structure uh, some scientific vagueness or uh, scientific instruction or something of that nature, um, what we're doing is we're reading the Bible anachronistically. Uh, furthermore, we're going to have to say of the original Bible readers, whether they're the Old Testament church reading this or the New Testament church or even the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have to say something on, along this line, that those readers um, misunderstood or had not a full or decent understanding of what Genesis 1 and 2 uh, mean uh, or what they were intended to mean. And there, there's one other thing I would say, too, uh, for our listeners, is that whenever you handle Hebrew st- uh, scripture, If it is poetical, which very often there is a poetical structure, the poetical structure is almost always catechetical. It's not poetry in the way in which we would read poetry as uh, English speakers or lovers of English prose. Rather, it's it's poetical for the the sake of memorization. Uh, This was intended for people to be able to teach their children uh, their religion and their cosmology. Uh, It wasn't in any way, shape, or form intended uh, to... Um, reconcile a, a scientific theory or a, a specific theory when it comes to uh, a view of, of the universe. You know, Nick, you brought up a, a really good point because, you know, you take, for example, Psalm 121. I lift my eyes unto the hills from where does my help come from? That's the question. Then the answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh and so it's a it's, it has very much a, a catechism structure to it, question, answer that is teaching some sort of uh, theological doctrine um, of, of there the assurance of salvation and protection for God's covenant people um, as a as a pilgrim uh, to the to the temple or to the presence of the Lord. Um, but you know one of the things that you know we probably need to circle back to, and I know that it will it will. The way that we discuss this will will lend itself back to this this conversation on uh, the creation of the the world, uh, the heavens and the earth in six days. But you know, when we when we come to the very first of Genesis one one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, some some very important things are being established there. One being that God is the creator. Uh, I I. This isn't original to me, but I can't exactly remember where I heard it. But, uh, you know, in a way, there is a, a, a very polite Southern uh, surprise, y'all. I'm Southern. Um, there's a very polite Southern uh, introduction. Uh, the Lord at the very outset of the scriptures is introducing himself to us as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Um, and, and so... You know, one of the one of the things that we have to understand is right at the right at the beginning of the scriptures, as we embark on God working through his creation, we have 
God who is eternal, always existing, never having a beginning, and the world, his creation, having a beginning. Um, and so there's a clear distinguishment between God and creation, which we've talked about as we've ta tackled the doctrine of God in previous episodes. But, you know, that it, it always it always helps to be reminded that God as creator is different from uh, his creation. And even as this catechism speaks of that, he creates the heavens and the earth uh, for himself in the span of six days. And so uh, for his own glory, right? We, we've hit on this too, as God works through creation and providence, as he elects some for salvation and passes by others, uh, he's doing it all for his glory. And, and as he works for his glory, it's then that he can say that his creation is very good. Um, and so does anybody have any thoughts they want to piggyback off of, off of that? You know, Matt, the thing that you're pointing out here is that the Bible has theology precede its cosmology. And that shows you very much the priority of the Bible. And that is that we should know the Lord our God as his creatures. So do you see it? God comes first, we come second. And I, I just think it's a wonderful thing. We don't only see that in Genesis, in the beginning, God. Um, but we see this as a priority of the confession of faith. They recognize this, uh, the separateness of God as a creator from his creatures, the independentness of God from his creation. And, and some people may say, oh, well, that's, yeah, okay, I can see the distinction, but why is that a big deal? Well, it's because other world religions don't believe that. Uh, they believe that we have a, a panentheistic God uh, who is within the creation or uh, at least concomitant uh, at the same time uh, with his creation uh, in the beginning of things or dependent upon his creation or uh, to even compare to the ancient religions of the Near East, uh, that gods were landlocked deities. You had a God of the Philistines and then you had a God of uh, the Israelites and uh, the Baal of, of the Philistines didn't have power uh, outside of the land of the Philistines. However, our God is not like that. And so theology in the Bible precedes cosmology because it is greater than, he is greater than all of his creatures. Uh, and I think it's a good thing to point out. Isn't it amazing how, even though we've transitioned to God's works, um, of creation and, and eventually providence, it still really all goes back to the doctrine of God. You know, I mean that um, I love what you said about the creator creature distinction. It's imperative. And if you have a bad doctrine of God, you tend to get that creator creature distinction wrong in some way. Um, and you force uh, what's James Dolezal is helpfully called theistic mutualism in some uh, respect, uh, depending on which erroneous view of God you have, because in some way you have failed to, uh, to keep the, that distinction between creator and creature. So the, I love how this catechism and, and really scripture and just Christian theology in general, uh, this idea of God as creator is so foundational. It is, um, something that highly exalts God. It's something like you said already, Nick, that uh, separates us from other world religions. 
um, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. I think sometimes we just, we're so used to hearing about creation that we kind of just skip right over it and kind of skip, you know, if you were to ask the average Christian, okay, give me, you know, give me, um, a list of reasons to praise God, you know, just write down a number of, of reasons. They're going to give you a lot of good reasons. I wonder how often it would take or how long it would take them before they said, I praise God that he's the creator of all things, you know, heaven and earth. I mean, um, I, I just think we've almost become dull to it and we need to find a way to let it re be reignited in our hearts, you know, find it afresh again. You know, one of the things, Derek, that the psalmist David does is he often praises God for his creation, his works in creation, and that drives him. I mean, you think about Psalm 8, right? Uh, when I see the works of your hands, who am I that you are mindful of me? Um, it, it, it correlates directly to, you know, this idea that God has created the heavens and the earth. He has created me and we'll get there here in just a, you know, a few minutes, but, but, you know, he is, he has done this out of his mere good pleasure for my good, for his glory. Um, and, and, you know, it, in a way it ties back to, uh, this whole debate, you know, six literal days, young earth, old earth. Um, but, you know, Voss makes a comment. He says, when was the world created? Um, and he says, we can only say in the beginning, as the Bible tells us, we are not told when the beginning was. Um, and so, you know, the scriptures don't seek out to try to teach some sort of scientific theory. Uh, it just simply tells us in the beginning, God created by the simple word of his mouth. And and one of the things that often confuses me, I guess, is that it's, it's a hard concept for people to grasp that when our God created the heavens and the earth, he created a mature world. Um, you know, he didn't create the seedlings in the ground that would eventually become a tree. You know, he created the tree. Um, you know, he didn't create Adam in embryo form. He created Adam as a man, Eve as a woman. And, and so, you know, when we, when we begin to get into this whole debate on, well, you know, we can't take the days in Genesis one as literal because we have this quote unquote old earth. Why is it impossible that our sovereign God who who created the heavens and the earth for his glory, created a mature world at the very beginning. Um, it shows us his, it shows us his graciousness. You know, not only does he create a beautiful creation for his people, um, not only does he create, you know, fruits and, and vegetables that we uh, all love uh, to eat and they taste sweet. You know, I mean, the, yeah, I, I don't know why the Lord created something like Brussels sprouts, but he created, you know, great fruits and vegetables that I love. Sweet potatoes, oranges, apples. Um, Four words, you know, Matt. Bacon wrapped <laughs> Brussels sprouts. Bacon wrapped okay. Brussels sprouts. Thank you, mm. Sean. Yes. Okay. Well, okay. I've, I've never done that, but that, maybe that's that is, the key. That is a staple at our Thanksgiving table thanks to the delectable 
cooking skills of Mrs. Moore's bacon wrapped Brussels sprouts. My four year old loves them. So yeah, I almost well. just broke out in doxology thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, the Lord could have created uh, an an embryo form of the world. He could created a black and white world. He could have created a singular uh, source of sustenance for us, but he creates a mature, diverse world uh, in the span of six days and calls it very good. Um, and, and so, you know, when, when the Psalmist David, to circle back to Psalm 8, when the Psalmist David is seeing this, beholding this, I mean, the sun shining brightly here in Dillon, South Carolina, you know, it it should cause a sense of awe within our hearts that God created the the sun and the moon, the stars, the 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 plains, the the sea, and all that is in it, and and yet He was mindful of me. Um, it, it is it's devotional, really, um, when you think about it in a scriptural lens. Um, and, and it's always just so humbling. I try to always tie into my prayers, the, the activity of God in creation and in his providences, uh, in my pastoral prayers and and such on the Lord's day, because I mean, you, you, you can feel his work as the breeze blows or as the rain falls, as the sun shines brightly on your face, you know, as the seasons change, uh, it's all declaring to us that that God is, you know, as as Nick and Derek were talking about, it's, it's a God who governs all things by his sovereign will, and he's a good and gracious God to give us such a, a beautiful uh, creation that we can uh, have dominion over. You know, one of the things that I think about this, Matt, is that people struggle uh, over the question of the length of days specifically because of because of the evidences of science but really really at the bottom of it what what it is is a struggle over supernaturalism okay there there's no argument for creationism a true creationistic argument that's not an evolutionary argument um that doesn't hold to creation out of nothing that is a an enormous statement to say that all things are created out of nothing. I mean, that, that's at the very heart of what creationism is. That That's essentially supernatural. Uh, th- there is no explanation for it. It's an assertion without proofs, okay? And whenever we go there, when we've already, as creationists, simply said all things are created out of nothing, in the space of six days is nothing. That that's small. Mm-hmm. That's a small claim. That's almost you could take it for granted that that's the case. Um, and so for me, I, I just encourage our, our our listeners to to let that sink in a little bit. If you actually are a creationist, which I think all Christians have to be, um, six days ought not be a big stretch for you. Uh, the creation of a of a world with the appearance of age, or uh, creation that that has maturity. That that really ought not be a stretch for anyone. Um, we've already accepted something much larger. You know, that makes my mystic heart, you know, just beat out of my chest, Nick. But, you know, one of the things that Dr. Kelly establishes in his 
uh, book Creation and Change uh, at the very out, at the very beginning uh, is that you know if we really think about the theories of science, um, the theories of science actually take more faith to affirm than the scriptures as they declare that a God in heaven creates the world. He says, you know, I mean, I, I think he's picking back off of, you know, uh, Aquinas's uh, arguments for the existence of God, like the teleological, you know, the watch and the watchmaker. Um, but, you know, what takes more faith to think in uh, the scope of billions of light years that somehow, some way, these two molecules uh, combine at such a hard rate that we have this big bang that all of a sudden creates this orderly world. Um, and, and then, you know, cavemen, monkeys, whatever you want to uh, argue there, uh, which I think is uh, out of bounds with Christianity. But, but, you know, that they somehow evolve into, you know, what we know today as, as humans that have uh, the image of God and and have the the ability to reason and to work uh, in it, it. What takes more faith to think that God has created a, a orderly creation that there's a a sovereign creator or that in the the span of light years that that these things have have taken place. And Dr. Kelly, I think, makes a great argument uh, that that the theories of science take more faith uh, in them uh, than what the scriptures require us to take faith in, uh, in Genesis 1 uh, and 2. I actually, uh, it was, I was leading a Bible study on Friday mornings at a local doctor's office here, and, and multiple uh, of those medical doctors that were attending were essentially theistic evolutionists, uh, and we started studying creation and change and that first chapter totally flipped their uh, their thinking on uh, how God has created the the heavens and the earth, um, and 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 so that that's always been pretty impactful for me as I saw some uh, guys who quote unquote trust the science right come to an understanding that we we serve a supernatural God, um, and and so that was a great point. Well, one of the things that God has created. <laughs> amongst everything right uh is he has created angels and it seems to me that the church in general has really poor doctrine of angels typically either it we have this doctrine of angels that uh you know it's these uh i don't know these uh pictures of babies with harps and wings, right? Or uh, angels and, or, or they're not existent, you know? And uh, that's not a good, that's a view. That's not a good view. That's not a biblical view. And the Westminster larger catechism once again, corrects us and causes us to think about angels in question 16. How did God create angels? Answer, God created all the angels, spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power to execute his commandments and to praise his name, yet subject to change. 
very rich. There's a lot of things that we could pick up on there. Um, Spin, why don't you kick us off on angels since you you actually don't believe in angels? Wow. Uh, You just accused me of being a Sadducee. The ink is wet for my 31-2 into your character investigation. What the Westminster Divines, I think, do very helpfully is they remind us that God is the creator, not just over things visible, but all things invisible, and that we live in a world that is much larger than just what we can see, that there really is cosmic warfare going on. We are at war with principalities, the prince of power of the air, and uh, angels are part of the means that God uses to protect and to guide his church. We see in the Old Testament that the ministry of angels uh, is very clear with uh, appearances to, say, uh, I think it was Manoah, uh, that's uh, Samson's uh, father. We also see the ministry of uh, Gabriel, one of the archangels, and we see him not just in uh, Daniel chapter 7, but we also see him at the appearing uh, or the announcement of Christ's birth in the New Testament. Uh, The Son of Man, of whom Daniel 7 spoke, is going to be the Son of Man that's going to be supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. So angels are very significant, uh, though we can't see them. And get this, in Matthew 18.10, we're told in the parable of the lost sheep, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what does that teach us? That doesn't teach us that every person has their own personalized guardian angel. My grandmother, when I was young, she had this Lincoln Town car, and there was a little bear that was up there on the the handle, you know, in case you have a very erratic (laughs) driver up in the handle, there was nestled this little bear. And whenever you would press on her, it would say, I'm your guardian angel. I'm your special friend. And so whenever I think of guardian angels, I think of little plush bears. But that, that's not what Matthew 18.10 is teaching. Rather, it's teaching that uh, God uses angels, though he would be very capable to do all things himself, but he has chosen to use means whereby his saints are protected. And I think of just all the things that were preserved from, perhaps by angel interventions. Uh, you know, you want to be careful not to speculate too much on angels because uh, that's like allowing or fixating upon the stars to the exclusion of the much brighter sun. But we can't deny that God has provided for us richly in all things that the church needs, whether by protection um, or just, you know, his, these are a means of his intervention and we should give God praise and thanks that we've got even a angelic retinue in our corner. No, well, that, that, that's that's right, Spin, and it's one of those things where we we don't want to overreact given the excesses because we even in this hyper secularized, uh, anti Christian, anti theological age, I mean, boy, I want to be careful so I don't say anything that's outlandish, but in certain demographics, at least here in America, it's a lot easier to talk about angels than it is to talk about the God of the Bible. Or let's say there's there's people there's people that are more receptive to it. Now maybe that's a generational thing, maybe that's a regional thing. Um, but at least in certain areas and certain segments of the population, you know, 
if I want to talk to people about the Lord, the exclusive the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the truth of the God of the Bible, Old and New Testament, and the truth claims of Christianity and so forth, well, that'll you know that'll shut the door. They'll, they'll shut the door in your face. But you know, like some of y'all were already saying, there's these little precious moments, angel figurines. I mean, there were. I've seen. You've seen the blankets on people's couches or for sale, and and you know, kitschy gift shops. I believe in angels. You know, if I haven't seen too many blankets saying, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God, or I believe in, uh, or or, or uh, maybe there is, maybe it's out there somewhere, uh, a blanket where it has the Nicene Creed of the Apostles' Creed stitched into it. But it'll say, I believe in angels, and there's these all these sort of ethereal Anglo-Saxon figurines. Uh, they look more something akin to the fairy godmother of Cinderella uh, than the angels as they're described. In scripture, I mean, when you think about the description of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, I mean, those are terrifying looking things. Those aren't the most cuddly sort of figures uh, one might imagine, but I digress. The point is, people have this sort of supernatural inclination and bent and sympathy, but angels aren't invasive. Angels don't make you upend your life. Angels don't make you readjust your lifestyle. Angels are there to comfort you and and guide you and support you and protect you, at least at least in the popular imagination. So it's easier to, to affirm belief in angels, but then you throw Jesus Christ into it, then all of a sudden people get uh, people take umbrage to that. So because of those excesses, my point being, Christians, at least I think, in our day and age, have shied away from maybe talking a lot about angels because it has been distracting for certain generations and for certain people. So let's focus more on God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, not talk too much about angels because people get hung up on that. Well, and, and I get that in, instinct, but at the same time, let's not throw all the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not throw any of the baby out, shall we? Let's talk about angels appropriately. They're part of God's created order. They're part of God's universe. They're spoken about in the scripture, but let's make sure we don't elevate them to the same level as the deity. Let's make make sure we teach on things and discuss things in their proper biblical balance and perspective. Derek. There's so much I want to say. Um, I, I, this is a bit of a pet topic of mine, a small pet, and I, I teach on it at my church occasionally um, because it's clear that angels are uh, executors. You know, the, the catechism says they execute God's commandments, but they are instruments whereby God uh, rule. Uh, rules the world rules the universe he uses them to execute providence and do all sorts of things there's ministering spirits in luke 16 i know this can get in dangerous territory but in luke 16 angels carry lazarus to abraham's bosom and um you know you think about angels gosh in the book of revelation they're so mighty and so grand that john sees one and, and bows down to worship because he's never seen a being like this. And, um, you know, if you, if you think about even going back to Seraphim, you know, our, our, our understanding and our view of angels is so domesticated. You know, there are some both Protestant and Jewish scholars, and I'm not a scholar, but I, I hold this view that Seraphim, if you were to trace the Hebrew word, I'll, I'll, I'll not bore our listeners with all this, but I, I think it's akin to something that looks more like what we'd understand a dragon to look like. And, it's this flaming snake-like creature that is terrifying, you know, and, um, uh, and, and angels have played such a huge role all throughout 
the uh, biblical theology as well, because you've got these cherubs that, um, okay, I'm not going to preach, but give me just a minute to flush this out because I, I you've got me on this subject that I really enjoy. Okay. So y'all just buckle in for a minute. Okay. Derek right. has just recently finished watching angels in the outfield. And so he's a bit, he's on this kick here recently. That's right. I see one right now behind Matt. <laughs> All right. And Matt's going to grab the microphone and just ascend. Okay. So, um, okay. So in, in Genesis, and I, I love this picture in Genesis, right? God kicks Adam and Eve out, out, out of the garden and he puts two cherubs there with flaming swords. Okay. Those swords, what are they? They're not for show, right? They're, they're for a purpose, but then the old Testament people, right? They have the Ark of the covenant and it's made a particular way. And the Ark of the covenant has a cherub, one at the head, one at the foot, and you sprinkle blood in between them. Right. So, and, you know, there's all the imagery of the tabernacle and in the temple about the Garden of Eden. And it's supposed to be a mini Garden of Eden on the earth. And so what would the priest and the people naturally think when they saw the Ark of the Covenant? Well, they'd think back to Genesis. They'd think back to when they got kicked out of the garden and that no one um, can get back into Eden unless there's bloodshed. Right. Unless they those angels are going to hack you together. And then in Psalms and elsewhere. Uh, like Deuteronomy, I think uh, God tells his people, I'll meet with you between the cherubs above the mercy seat. That's where I'm going to meet you. And that's never good news because in between the cherubs is death. It's destruction. There's blood. There's uh, sacrifice that's happened. And then, um, you know, you could keep going, but you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Okay. But then he's laid in the tomb. They come to his empty tomb. And John's account, which is so interesting, says that there's two cherubs, one at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus lay. And you think there's not a, a blood stain there in between where Jesus' battered body had laid? Well, and then you get fast forward again to the book of Revelation. And there's the angel, the cherubs again. And they're guarding. They're guarding the. They're on the city walls of the New Jerusalem, and we're not hacked up. We're not. We're able to go back in. The doors are open. Why? Because of what Jesus had done. I mean, it, it, there's such imagery here, and it just pulls it together. Well, angels are a big part of that, right? They're not the central theme, but they are an important part of the central message of that that God uses them, they mean something. And we just, we've got to recover a good sound biblical theology of angels. Sermon over. Okay, I'm done. No, but I think that's, that's, why, that's, that's a good go ahead, word. Sean. That's uh, just, just to say that's a good word because angels have been sentimentalized. And so, like, like we were saying earlier, we we kick them to the curb. Well, because it's an abused or misunderstood or or purposely misconstrued doctrine. Let's just not talk about it. Let's focus on the bigger, important stuff, too. Well, let's not do that either. Like you were just saying, let's recover a robust and accurate and biblical uh, doctrine of angels. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, because um, this is a little bit of a, a pet topic for me as well, um, because I wrote a paper on uh, Calvin's uh, understanding of the angels, and I was just always captivated while I was doing that research that, Every almost every time he refers to them, he refers to them as illustrious and noble examples of God's sovereign care. 
Um, and, and so it's just, you know, there's a reality to the spiritual realm. There's a reality to their work in God's creation and his providence. And, and yes, we need to be careful not to, you know, get off the rails uh, with our understanding of the angels and the spiritual realm, but it's, it's healthy to understand that it's there. Uh, and it's there actually for us, right? God creates them as his messengers, his defenders, uh, as examples, executors of, of, of his sovereign uh, power and care for his people and for, like Derek just said, for his city that he is creating for us, this new heavens and the new earth. But I know that we need to get to uh, how did God create man. And so, Nick, you want to take us there? Yeah, but before we go, I just want to make one last comment. Um, I think there's Not a lot allowed. of precision. Sorry. I've already. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's closed the topic entirely. That's good. I have a thought um, as well, but Dar- uh, Nick might run with it. So go ahead. One of the things that we see um, being very clearly uh, asserted uh, with Westminster Larger Catechism 16 is whenever they talk about the angels as spirits, they're immortal, but they're created. Yeah, they're they're not eternal. So we talk about God; He is eternal and immortal. But there's a significant distinction here. Uh, the view of the of the Bible regarding angelic beings is very different than other religions. Uh, these are not demigods. They're not divine. Uh, they are themselves created things. They are emissaries of the Lord and servants of his hand. Even the word that we translate for angels, apart from seraphim and, and cherubim, um, literally means to be messengers. And so often the Bible will speak of, or even older writers will speak of preachers as being angels, angels of the Lord. And sometimes the interpreters will... Um, you know, struggle over the question: Are we talking about uh, these these spiritual beings? Are we talking about uh, ministers with pulpits and, and and tongues set loose for the Lord? Right. Uh, but I, I'll go ahead and, and punt it to Sean. See what he wants to say, and then you know, then we'll segue in a second. Oh, similar to what you were saying, just how helpful the caveats here that the divines add to make the distinction of angels from the Lord God. Yes, holy. Um, and as you were saying, but not eternal. They are created beings. And then that little clause right there at the end yet subject to change. Uh, our God is immutable, but the angels are subject to change, and we won't. We don't have to go miles and miles into this, but it's just worth remembering. There are fallen angels. Uh, they were deceived by the deceiver. Though there were those that the elect angels, and then there were the angels that fell away, the fallen angels. So angels, not unlike uh, mortal creatures, are subject to change. They are mutable, but the Lord God Almighty is immutable, and that's a distinction that's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, so I know we're we're transitioning. We've said that a few times, but um, so I would just encourage our uh, listeners to grab Joel Beakey's Systematic Theology, Volume One. First of all, grab everything Joel Beakey writes, um, but grab Volume One of his Systematic Theology. He has a great section at the end on angels and demons, and after he discusses the nature and um, all different kinds of related topics about angels, he gets to the work of angels and he lists eight different things that angels do according to scripture. And I'll just rattle those off just so to get people thinking about it more. First angels observe God's works because they're considered, they're called watchers. 
Um, they praise God's glory. Number two, third, they guard God's holy places. Fourth, uh, they communicate God's word. Uh, fifth, they care for God's children. Sixth, they protect God's servants. Seventh, they execute God's judgments. And eighth, they serve God's son. I mean, that that's a... It, I mean, I, I don't know that I could have listed all those things off off the top of my head, you know, but there's so much there. And uh, you're right. We don't want to go overboard and, and do an early church heresy and worship angels. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to ignore it either. So I think all that, uh, a lot of wisdom from y'all. So it's good. One Scottish divine called them emissaries of divine providence. And I think that's a really a simple way for us to consider in our mind. Uh, as we do this, uh, as we do segue into question 17, uh, again, we're on the topic of creation and the work of creation. Uh, question 15 in its answer gives us this wonderful expression of the method of God in creation. What's his method to create all things, whether it's sun, moon, stars, and all things on, on this planet and other planets, uh, or whether it's angels or men. Nonetheless, it is by the word of his power. Uh, God's creating act is speaking. And if that doesn't give you a moment to just pause in amazement, uh, mouth agape, and wonder uh, over this magnificent God, then really nothing will. He speaks and all things become. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's such a significant thing. And so whenever we look at the Bible's accounting of the creation of man, there's more specificity of specifically what the Lord is doing in creation uh, and question 17 directs us specifically to that. And the question is, how did God create man? It answers, after God had made all other creatures, he created man male and female, formed the body of the man out of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image in knowledge righteousness and holiness having the law of god written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to the fall and i just think that's a wonderful very full maybe not exhaustive but uh, very close to it ex uh, expression of the lord's creating of man this this final pinnacle creation mm -hmm. uh, that he placed within uh, his cosmos for the sake of his own glory uh, Sean, do you want to run with that? Yeah, I mean, we've Matt's already very helpfully talked to us about Psalm eight, but Psalm eight is the natural place to which my my mind runs of that, as you said, Nick, the pinnacle uh, the, of the created of in these six days of creation, God makes land and trees and earth and sky and seas and animals and plant life and all sorts of flying creatures and creeping things, and then the crown jewel is that which he makes in his own image, man, male, and female. After God had made all other creatures, he created male, excuse me, man, male, and female, uh, made them after his own image. It's, I guess it's worth pointing out because sometimes this gets, this gets lost in some of the debates that are happening these days, but uh, he created man. Um, maybe that's a bit of an archaic, uh, idiomatic English expression 
uh, 17th century English expression, but perhaps we might say mankind, humankind, although I don't think we need to be embarrassed about uh, gendered language like that, but he created man, male and female. So he created mankind, he created humans, mortals, male and female, and then a few clauses later after all these uh, commas and semicolons made them after his own image. Uh, male and female, he created he, them. Um, Adam and Eve, male and female, uh, made in the image of God. Uh, sometimes our there's debates happening these days. I don't know if you guys have seen it all, but there's debates happening these days that seem to suggest that our sisters are not made in the image of God. And I'm not entirely sure of the origins of that claim or that disagreement, but uh, larger catechism would seem to take issue uh, with that that kind of assertion. So it's good to see that there, that uh, male and female uh, co co-regents as they were made to be, uh, vice-regents under God, uh, exercising dominion in that first creation, uh, and both bearing uh, the Lord's image as they were made uh, by him, specially. I just want to say that uh, any sort of paternalism that subjects our sisters, uh, whether in the flesh or in Christ, or however we want to use that language, mm-hmm. uh, to being something less than, than full image-bearers of the God of heaven— uh, that we should anathematize that, anathematize that with strongest um, sincerity. Uh, yeah, that's abominable. Uh, it is to hold to hold that makes them subhuman. Uh, enough for a second should we be able to accept that of any uh, any man, woman, or child of any race or any nation anywhere ever. So just to be absolutely clear about that. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. I've seen it iterized, or I've seen iterations of it where it's like, well, man is made after God's image, and females are made in the image of man, but she's not really immediately derivative of the image of God. She's the image of man. Like, Well, the catechism would seem to, more than seem to suggest, the catechism would assert, uh, based on the teachings of Holy Scripture, that men and women, uh, as the crown jewel of God's created order, uh, bear God's image. So, well, well said. Nick, uh, I love the part here too about uh, endued, or you know, in modern parlance, we might say endowed with living, reasonable, and immortal souls. And I'm going to say this now, lest I forget to say it now, but I'm sure we'll come back to it in the weeks to come. That the Catechism and the Confession very deliberately uses similar language when it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That He also, uh, when He was incarnate. When he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, he was granted a reasonable soul. Uh, so that it's deliberate on the part of the of the divines to use the language that's descriptive of men of of mankind of mortals. That when Jesus became man, he's described with similar language as well. That he had a true and reasonable soul. Uh, so that's that's worth just noticing there. But man is given a true and reasonable and immortal soul. Uh, so, like the angels in question 16 are immortal, yet not eternal. Likewise here, man, there's an element of him that is not eternal, it is created, but he's given something that is immortal, uh, namely his soul. And I appreciated, um, let me turn to it here, I appreciated very much the comment that Voss made uh, with regard to this descriptor here. Uh, why... Is it important to believe that mankind were endued or, or endowed uh, with immortal souls at the creation? And at least, and you can kind of get the the idea even in his answer of what were the theological controversies that were raging in this day, presumably. Well, he says this, because some present-day sects teach that no person 
has an immortal soul by nature, but only by believing in Christ for salvation. So apparently there were these arguments that, well, not everyone's going to live eternally. Not everyone's soul is going to have an immortal soul. But if you become a believer in Christ, then you're given an immortal soul. Voss says, no, no. These sects teach that this false doctrine, they teach it as a convenient way of getting rid of the idea of hell. If unbelievers and wicked people do not have immortal souls, then of course they cannot suffer eternal punishment in hell. For if they do not have immortal souls, then death must be the end of their existence. So annihilationism is the doctrine that that's commonly known by. You live this life, you never turn to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't embrace him as your savior, you die, that's it. You're just annihilated. That's that's that. Uh, a correct understanding, Voss says, of the scriptural doctrine of creation, of the, hum- of the creation of the human race, will counteract this dangerous heresy. So there's probably more to say on that, but I just thought that that quote from Voss was worth mentioning uh, at this point in our discussion. Well, Sean, what I think uh, Voss maintains very clearly with what you've articulated is that all men, all women, you know, by extension, that we all bear the image of God. Uh, believer and unbeliever alike, the image of God is restored in the believer in a way that it is not restored and not renovated through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the grace of justification, adoption, and sanctification. But we're all made in the image of God. And so therefore, we all have an intrinsic dignity, not for the reasons that we're told today. Uh, We're often told that everyone has value, that everyone is beautiful, but all of those rationales are cut at the knees because people don't know ultimately why they have value. It's because they were made after the image of an infinitely glorious God, and there are what we call communicable attributes that we have impressed upon us uh, at the moment of our conception when God uh, knits us together, when we're fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb, We have knowledge, we have righteousness, and we have holiness. Now, we're not saying that total depravity isn't a thing. We definitely believe in that. But we don't believe in utter depravity either, where man is as sinful as he possibly could be. When we have classes here at Westminster, and I'm teaching on the doctrine of total depravity and how sin touches all of our members, I I ask members of the class, which will kill you? a glass filled with pure cyanide or a glass that is 99% water with one drop of cyanide. Both, right? One is utterly poisonous, totally, you know, you could look at it that way. And the other one is comprehensively. The totality of that glass is polluted by sin. And so our neighbors have value by virtue of their being created in the image of God, but that image is marred and will not pass muster when we have to go before the judgment seat of God and answer for everything that we've thought, said, and done that runs contrary to the design that God has made us for. We were made by God and for God. And so what we need is the second Adam, just as the first Adam is a historical human being with a true body and a reasonable soul who fell and did not keep the covenant of works, So we need a second Adam, who is a historical figure, he must be, who perfectly keeps the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial and civil laws that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. So we need a perfect man to be the perfect law keeper and substitute. 
And so through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the merits of his obedience and his sacrificial death as, and they're credited to us, right? So this is where you see, as we're kind of tying everything together now, why your doctrine of creation will necessarily affect your doctrine of anthropology, that's the doctrine of man, and your soteriology. So it's, it's, a, it's a total package, the Weezer song. Can we talk about Weezer on this podcast? You know, uh, you know, if you want to destroy my sweater, right? You know, you just pull the thread and you walk away. If we pull away one of these threads, uh, we get into trouble in other places. So we can't, I'll say, capitulate uh, to the unbeliever and try to have satisfactory reasons or a reasonable faith in one area because that will downstream invariably affect your doctrine of man, your doctrine of Christ, your doctrine of the atonement. So I love how Westminster just, even in the way it's presenting these things, God created the world a certain way. Therefore, he created man in a certain way. And as we're going to see a little bit later, Christ came and redeemed us in a certain way. Couldn't be otherwise. I, I'm, I agree with John Murray, who said that uh, it was a consequent absolute necessity that Jesus had to come in the incarnation to redeem us and to redeem humanity in precisely the manner that he did. It's, uh, as we, I don't know if the language of potentiality is the right word to use here, but it probably is just given our, our modern uh, parlance and the way we speak that the catechism very helpfully reminds us of, and we have no way of imagining this, do we? Because all we know is sin. All we know is a fallen world. It's our only experience. But the fact that Adam and Eve were created in this pristine paradise, as the catechism says, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, there was this great potentiality for them to do well and to do rightly, to live blessedly in in paradise and in in blessedly and in bliss and communion with the Lord, to have dominion over the creatures. So there's the potential to do well and do right, but as the last clause there says, yet subject to fall. So there was also the potentiality there to do poorly, to to choose poorly, and indeed uh, they did, as we know. But nevertheless, there was this this state, this unfallen state, where as God created them in perfection, and he had any gave them his commands, the law of God written on their hearts because they were made after his own image with in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Uh, this this resemblance to God of his uh, bearing those, those communicable attributes. Uh, they could have done well. They could have done poorly. There was this great potentiality there, but there was the potentiality uh, to go either way. Likewise with the angels. The, as we said, observed quickly back in question 16, yet subject to change. Uh, they're immortal, but they're not eternal. They're created, and they're not immutable. Only the Lord God Almighty is immutable. There's, those angels were subject to change, and many did. Uh, many many are un, not elect angels. They fell. Uh, well, likewise here with mankind. Uh, they are not immutable. Only the Lord God is immutable, and there was the potential for man to fall, uh, and he fell from that blessed state. Uh, sadly, but thanks be to God, um, that Genesis 3.16 promise of the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ has come uh, so that those who are ruined, lost, and how's the the language of the hymn put it? Lost and ruined by Adam's fall, uh, those who come to Christ by faith. Uh, God is about the business of restoring what Adam lost. And Sean, to piggyback off of that, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, 
was impeccable. And we're going to get into this when we talk about Christology. The first right. Adam was perfect yet mutable, meaning yes. subject to change. Yes. But Jesus, by virtue of the union of his human nature with the divine, was immutably perfect in all that he thought, said, and did. That's how he can be the perfect and spotless sacrifice. And so he is, we would say, the picture of what we will be uh, in our humanity when Christ returns and our bodies are resurrected and rejoined with our souls. There will not be the possibility to sin. Uh, we will be immutably or impeccably perfect uh, in heaven when Jesus returns, and that's good news. So I love how you just brought out that God is in the business of restoring us. And but even as we say that, you know, the garden being typological, or we would say pointing forward to the heavenly rest that Adam and Eve lost out on, great as Eden was, heaven's going to be even better because yes. we won't be like Adam able to fall. Uh, there's the fourfold state of man by Thomas Boston, right? A great book. Maybe one day we'll have to have a, uh, you know, round table discussion on that one, a great book that it is, but there is coming a day when that image of God in man, I, I tell people, you know, it's not like a rock was thrown at the mirror and the mirror just shatters and it's on the floor. It's more like mud thrown on a window. You could still see through the window a little bit, but it's not pretty. And so the image of God in man is going to be fully restored and beautified and all the muck and mire of sin will be wiped away when Jesus comes back. That's so right. It's in that day, right? Well, and you mentioned the Thomas Boston book, and I know we're at the the hour mark, and so we're we're approaching something of a wind down. But it is worth mentioning here because the Catechism, in its own way, is is tipping its hat in that fourfold uh, state of man direction. And so, for for folks who may not be familiar with those categories, I know we have a lot of young listeners uh, as well. It's worth mentioning just ever so briefly the fourfold state. Uh, the first one being posse peccare. It's the classic Latin. It's possible to sin. Adam was created in a state of holiness and perfection, yet it was possible to sin, and sin he did. Then there's that second state where it's non posse, non peccari. It's not possible to not sin. We, uh, fall our native nature, we sons of Adam, uh, we, we who are outside of faith in Christ, outside of regeneration, we're fallen in Adam, it is not possible for us to not sin. We're come from our mother's womb, in sin did my mother conceive me, there it is. But then, Praise God in Christ when we come to faith in him. There's that third category, that third of the fourfold states of man, uh, that it is passe non peccare. In Christ, it is possible to not sin. He's given us a new nature, a new heart, new affections. He's given us the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we can say yes to liberty and yes to life and no to sin. We can make war and mortify our sin. Not, not perfectly, not in this life, because then that fourth state in the life to come, then it will be non Passe pacari, not possible to sin, not able to sin, and over oh, that day uh, when the Lord will hasten uh, that reality to us. So, coming, what I heard was coming uh, in a year, year and a half. Uh, we're going to do a podcast. It'll no longer be called Larger for Life. It'll be called the Fourfold State or something. We're going to do the a podcast on that book. Is that what we're going to do? Well, the problem is there's five of us. So yeah. we are going to vote one of you off of the island for yes, the numerical symmetry. For and sure. I won't, because you and Matt are almost indistinguishable, according to some of our listeners, Yeah, I think one of the two of you is on the chopping block. We should have a feats of strength competition to determine who stays and who goes. Yeah, yeah. During the we're just going to create a, we're just going to create a joint personality 
um, and, and just be this. We're going to be the same person, and so we'll only be one co-host, yeah. but two yeah. people. Yeah, we're, I'm we're not persuaded. On a bad that, Trinitarian analogy here. I mean, I'm not persuaded that they're not already the same person. Have any of y'all ever seen Matt and Derek in the same room at the same time? Because I haven't. They They're both the one man, Derek Dillon. <laughs> I get so many white sold shoe picks sent to our group chat that I'm persuaded that they have to be the same person. Hashtag white soul army. It's it's alarming. <laughs> it's it's rather alarming. Like on a sartorial and just a theological level. Uh, I, I just told the people that we don't believe in utter depravity, Derek, but mm, you're, you're providing evidence to the contrary, per mayhaps. And don't forget that we have white-soled brown shoes and colored whiskers. We have colored shoelaces um, that match our socks. So, you know, just, I mean, make sure we tell everybody how stylish Derek Bright and I are on the Lord's Day. I, I just want to say I really appreciate Sean's crocodile skin boots, his cowboy boots that he wears each Lord's Day with his Geneva gown. It's it's perfect. Um, it really goes with the flow of of the church he's at uh, there uh, in Tennessee. It's, it's I mean, man. it has for a while, but I, I've wondered if I'm not being quite. Uh, not quite contextual enough. And so knowing that you are headed to the great wild west there in Texas, I might gift them to you because I think it'll be much more contextual for your new uh, sphere of ministry. What do you think, Nick? I don't know, but I have I have been shown that uh, the Crocs clog company is making Crocs cowboy boots, and I will not wear those. <laughs> so is, is Sean's alligator boots a part of what the catechism refers to as our dominion over creation is, is that arise, kill and eat, you know, take the meat, eat it, take the skin, make Sean's boots. It's I perfect. mean, I mean, you say, you say that in jest, but I think there is a case to be made there. Uh, well, relatedly when I was in college with a, a good buddy of mine, we were driving, uh, in his car on the way to worship at our at our church, it's about fifteen or twenty minutes from campus, and we passed by this field uh, full of beef cattle, and and he was um, musing musing about uh, the cattle, about how how stinky they were and things like that, because I guess he grew up near a farm and and not on a farm but near a farm, and it was often I guess pretty smelly according to him. And I just said, "Oh my friend, it is good." to take dominion over creation because we were having burgers and steaks at somebody's house uh, later that afternoon following the morning worship service. And that that thought has just stuck with me that, yes, indeed, it is good to take dominion over creation and enjoy the good gifts uh, the Lord has provided to us through his created works. America didn't win the West over for salad. I'll just put it that way. Amen. I thought we were going to get a Sean Morris and Ryan Beasy cow tipping uh, story out of that one. We'll save that for a future podcast episode, but you know, I, I was keeping it more on the reverential for this particular point. But there will probably be a time and a a time and a place for exactly that story. I'll tell you about the time I took him snipe hunting one time, and he was out there for days. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for uh, this episode. Um, as we've for the last, I guess, three or four minutes here, got off the rails. Uh, but there is something to this idea of dominion as we close, because as we 
are created as men and women in the image of God. He does give us dominion over his creation very graciously. Uh, he creates this world as for himself, as for his glory. And, it, and as an act of his glory, uh, he tells us to, to work it, to fill it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's all so that we might enjoy him and, and glorify him uh, forever in this good creation that he has made. But I hope you've enjoyed uh, this lengthy episode of Larger for Life. A reminder that next episode we'll be tackling uh, God's providence. Uh, what are God's works of providence? Questions 18, 19, and 20. And so we'll hope you'll tune back in with us next week. But for now, cheers and bye-bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. <laughs>